Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in management and career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and happy to give you actionable ideas to elevate your current or perhaps your future nonprofit organization. Thanks for listening. If you're a current nonprofit leader or hope to be one, you're in the right place. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit leaders who are truly on the cutting edge of our sector. And if you would do me a favor, share this episode with one other person on the path so we can continue to build a global community focused on nonprofit leadership. Well, I had a fantastic conversation in this episode with Anna Dewar Gully, who co-founded a tech-enabled strategy firm focused on solving the problem of inequality at scale. And let's face it, many nonprofits are talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but are they really making progress to back up these public statements? Well, that's exactly what Anna and I discussed. First, talking about the wrong ways to approach equity and racial issues at your nonprofit. And then she lays out a practical framework to guide your strategic planning process in a way that integrates DEI so that it does not just become an add-on in your planning process. Lots of great ideas and resources to unpack here, so make sure you check out the show notes. This is episode number 94. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find more about all of the things Anna and I discuss, as well as more information on the great work she's doing through title equality all over the world. Speaking of resources, make sure you connect with us We're available on all of the primary social media channels, as well as get on our email list so that you can get free weekly resources, episodes of the podcast just like this one, and we can help you perhaps with your strategic plan, your board engagement, or maybe more importantly, we can help you on your journey to nonprofit leadership through our coaching, training, or one of our unique mastermind programs, speaking of which, the summer session of that program is available now. There are a few spots left, so make sure you check it out if that is of interest. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Anna DeWar Gully. Anna, thank you for joining me on the path. Thank you so much, Patton. Nice to be here. Well, I'm excited to have this conversation. What you're doing through title equality is fantastic. You're tackling difficult issues of equity and race, Uh, But you're also doing it with a strategic planning mindset, which I find a fascinating combination. And I know you'll explain more how it applies to our nonprofit leaders who are listening. So before we dive into that and all the good work you're doing, um, talk about founding Title Equality. What is it and how did your journey lead you to this kind of current activity? Sure. So today, Title Equality is a bit of a mouthful. We describe ourselves as a tech-enabled equality-obsessed strategy firm. Um, how we founded it uh, is, is a bit of a long story, so I'll try to give it to you in brief. But sure. bottom line, we uh, I, I spent most of my career in public policy roles and uh, eventually in strategy and change roles in, in a number of different organizations, including a number of nonprofits and government uh, organizations. And you know, uh, I noticed a problem as a strategist and as a person who cared deeply about equity for as long as I can remember. And that's that most equity, diversity, and inclusion initiatives that were happening in the organizations that I was working in uh, were disconnected from strategic decision making. So there was a gap 
between these kind of activities that we are doing to say as organizations that we were supportive of diversity, equity, and inclusion and expanding those, those things in our organizations and how leaders got together around a table to make decisions. And I felt like that gap was a critical gap and it was holding back progress. And so Title Equality was founded uh, by myself and by my partner, Dr. Kristen Leash, to try to build a bridge between those two worlds, between the world of equity work and the world of strategy and decision-making, uh, because we felt that there was absolutely no way to change organizations or make them more equitable without building that bridge. That's fantastic. And as um, you and I have discussed, you're working in both the for-profit and non-profit communities, but these issues very much apply to both sides. A hundred percent. And you know, it's funny, I spent so much of my career in the nonprofit uh, slash public sector. And I really did think potentially, you know, the, the corporate world would be very different from a governance perspective, from a decision-making perspective. What I found in my consulting practice is that ultimately they're kind of, you know, rooms full of people making flawed decisions. And right. those, those realities cut across every kind of organizational structure you can imagine and find. Um, and the solutions are very similar from one context to another. Well, I'm excited that, of course, the value you've gained from working in organizations of all shapes and sizes and profit and non-profit benefits us and our audience in particular. You know, something else you've talked about, Anna, is you've not only continued to do this important work in this kind of virtual environment, you've actually accelerated the work you're doing. I don't know how you're keeping up with it. So, in fact, I'm asking all my guests, how are you keeping up? with everything you're doing, because there are so many of our listeners, of course, are juggling a lot in this kind of pandemic environment. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it for any folks that are out there listening who, like me, have been juggling uh, the demands of, of a young family with uh, the demands of trying to grow or succeed in business or or, or the nonprofit world. And um for me, uh, that juggle, you know, it started at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, we, we really did think our business might die during this, this period in time. Um, wow. At the beginning of the pandemic, you know, right before the pandemic, we were on a high uh, as a relatively new organization, only about two years old at that point in time. Um, we were just really starting to click into a new gear. Uh, then the pandemic hit and, you know, basically around the world in every kind of organization you can imagine, people dropped their equity bu budgets all of a sudden. Um, right. People, it was one of the first things uh, to fall off the priority list, which, you know, as I remarked in a number of blog posts around that time was a good indicator of just how central equity really is to most people's thinking in most organizations around the world. You know, you know, if you're in a crisis, it's the first thing to fall off the list that is probably not a real priority. Sad and but so, true. Yeah. Sad but true. And so, you know, I really started to, 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 to get, we, we just got our voice out into the world at first and talked about that problem and talked about what that meant and what organizations needed to be thinking about, about how to bring these issues back. And particularly because COVID was one of these, you know, well, it's just an, an, an unprecedentedly huge a problem, I think, for many in our generation. And, you know, it's also a massive equity problem. And it was radically from, from minute one, accelerating the inequalities in our society. Right. And so I was really concerned that organizations may never pick that baton back up. Um, but then as world events would have it, you know, there were some incredibly high profile murders, like the murder of George Floyd that happened in the spring of 2020 which suddenly brought people's attention uh, you know, back to this problem of inequality. And in many ways, 
brought the world's attention uh, to these problems in a way that had not happened in a very long time, I would say in a couple generations. Um, the uh, Black Lives Matter movement started to take hold. There was all of the political realities of what was happening in the US, but also around the world. And you know, suddenly the world was paying attention to these issues again. And it was in that downtime between what felt like the end of my business and what really felt like a new beginning for my business that we decided to put some of our very unique programming into a digital space. And we saw it suddenly get taken up all over the world. That's fantastic. And which is exciting. I know for listeners who are going to listen and learn from your comments today, Anna, but they can access your resources, right? Um, despite your uh, Canadian uh uh, setting right now. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter where you are, right? We can get to you. No, yeah, and in fact, most you. of our clients, most of our clients are are American, actually, which is just I, I, don't, I don't know why yet, but that right. that seems to be the case. However, we are expanding also in Europe and 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 actually more, much more slowly growing in Canada, which I always find interesting and a little concerning. Kind of in your hometown, yeah. so to speak, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, it, you and I talked about this, well, and you articulated very well in that kind of opening description. Uh, lots of organizations, for-profit, non-profit, are talking about e- equality, diversity, inclusion. Are you seeing progress? I, I guess the fact that you're busy is a good sign, but I wonder, as you step back now in this kind of turbulent year of the last 12 months, what are you seeing? Well, one of the most important differences that, I, that I'm that i seeing is that prior to the pandemic and prior to the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and all of those really catalytic moments and um, in, in, in inequity events that have happened in 2020 and that the, the world has shone a light on in 2020, um, I would say that if we got 10 calls, maybe two of those calls were people that were or organizations that were really willing to look under the hood to examine how inequality was showing up in those organizations and to try to bring about genuine solutions. You know, wow. eight, eight were not really serious. Eight were really looking for a tick box. You know, yep. they were looking for the illusion of change, but they were really not interested in understanding either the problem or the potential solution. Um, post uh, all of these events, um, it's a very different reality from the perspective of who's calling us. Now, I don't really know what that means for the bigger picture, but I would suggest now about eight out of 10 of the calls that we receive most, you know, the the inbound interest into our business are coming from organizations where there is a passionate champion inside that organization who's like, we're not doing what we always did before. And we're totally serious about dealing with these issues. And we need an entirely new way to look at these issues. And that's how they find us because our work is really unusual in this space. And so what I would say is, Minimally, there are different people leading this work right now. Um, we, we are, there are organizations that are empowering uh, innovators and change makers to step to the front of these initiatives. Um, and, and those folks are trying to make different buying decisions in terms of the solutions that they're pursuing uh, because they know that some of the solutions their organizations had purchased in the past were not working, we're not making change. Uh, so it's a different reality. The door is open. We can kind of push it in, you know. It's it's or you know push it open. It's it feels to me that there is a, a receptivity to these issues that I certainly can't remember in the course of my career, and I think has been very. Uh, I just don't think it's been a, a reality for decades. Um, so I think this is a time for those folks that are listening who are truly champions for equitable change. I think this is a time to to make sure your voice is heard. 
to get out there, push yourself to the front and start talking about what to do differently. Uh, I love how you put that and you're right. And I've had others that made that comment. Let's, what do we do to make sure that this is not just a moment, but a movement. Mm. And as you said, I guess the first step is an organization simply acknowledging it has a problem, which I would contend and agree with you that a lot of organizations really didn't think they had a problem, even if they wanted to make some token effort to appear they are. Um, what are some of the other problems you see or perhaps the wrong ways to approach this? And you may have alluded to that in terms of we got to make sure we have the right people involved, right? In terms, but I wonder if you've seen organizations who say they want to kind of move forward on these types of equity and diversity issues, but they don't do it the correct way. Yeah, it's funny. I think in some ways, diversity, equity, and inclusion is a space where for too long, we've actually had a dialogue about right ways and wrong ways. And I think to some degree that's paralyzed innovation in the space. Interesting, um, yep. Here are the right words to say, here are the right uh, solutions to pursue, here's the gold standard. And I think if we're actually honest with ourselves as leaders and organizations, if we are actually listening to our people, what we would be hearing is that every single organization in the USA and Canada and around the world, I would argue, has various uh, problems of inequality within, you know, under its roof, um, so to speak. Uh, inequality is a pervasive problem in our society. And unfortunately, it's uh, not a set of problems that anyone has come to totally um, sure solutions about. So that projection of what's right and wrong in some ways hinders getting under the hood of the problem and trying to find unique or nuanced solutions, you know? Right. And so one of the things that we really try to show up with at, at Tidal is, is, is we actually kind of deliberately don't step into these conversations and characterize ourselves as experts in making equitable change. What we feel like we are is more conduits to people's experiences and to bringing uh, the realities of unequal experiences and the ideas of people that might experience or observe inequality to the table so that it can reshape decision-making. And in every organization, what those solutions ultimately look like is very different. I mean, there may be common themes from one organization to another, right. but the most important thing you can do really is ask, how is inequality showing up here? You know? And then learn from your organization, or as I often say to my clients, be a student of your organization. Because, you know, these problems in different power structures and different governance structures and different organizational structures and settings and industries, um, they show up differently, you know, but ultimately it's the same root problem, which is inequality, you know, whether it shows exactly. up as racism or sexism or toxic power dynamics or some people having access to shaping decisions and other people's voices being excluded. Like these problems take many, many shapes and forms. So there's no one right answer, but it, it, what, what is important is that you set out to explore the problems with an open mind. Well, well put. And, and you've mentioned having the right people involved is critical. And there seems to be some improvements along that line, or at least I was going to ask you about it. As a nonprofit leader, of course, one of the most important groups I need to be engaged in this discussion is my board of directors. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing in the board of director space, particularly in the nonprofit arena, and as to their willingness to go along with these types of kind of programs? Well, I mean, boards of directors are such interesting places in all organizational contexts and in nonprofits, especially because, you know, oftentimes we 
we look to find people for our boards of directors who are people of influence and power out there in the world. You know, they may not be people who have, for example, a deep understanding of how to make social change, but they may sit, be sitting at the board of a tape of a of an organization that makes social change. Right. right? And we often defer to their power and influence in order to shape the mandates of our organization, you know? And one of the things that, and the reason that our work is so connected to strategic planning is that I learned when I was working in nonprofits that organizations could really risk sending themselves down the wrong track, you know, when it comes to serving their social mandates uh, by overly listening to the perspectives of boards over the people that they serve. And Good that's point. an example of how inequality shows up in all organizations, right? So let's say you're a, a charity serving, you know, providing food security, you know, but you have a board of directors made up of socioeconomically advantaged individuals who have corporate jobs and corporate power and corporate corporate influence, you know, who's designing your strategic plan with you? Is it your board of directors? Or are we listening to the voices of the people that that organization serves to understand the root causes of food insecurity and to design solutions and programming that really speaks to those problems, you know? And from my perspective, that is one example of how really powerful inequities creep into organization design, organizational strategy. And so, you know, when it is when it when it comes to boards of directors, one of the things that I think is the most powerful thing is to help them understand that their perspectives, particularly on what an organization does or how it shapes its mandates are not necessarily the most critical for shaping the right programs and the right solutions in the social space. Um, and trying to take them through a journey of understanding to get to that point is so critical versus saying, you know, what can we say about the problem of inequality? And what will you allow us to, 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 to determine in terms of our statement on diversity, equity, inclusion? You end up in these incredibly constrained conversations where boards of directors just inherently because of their position in society are relatively risk averse about making a, you know, a strong and powerful statement about dealing with inequality for their organization. Whereas if you went to the front lines of that organization, if you went to the people that that organization served and said, what statement could you make about what this organization needs to do about diversity, equity, and inclusion, you would hear completely different answers yes. and arguably way more powerful answers, you know? So what I try to teach boards of directors to do is to be brave enough to listen to the people that the organizations to, to make it an, an imperative of leadership in a, in a healthy nonprofit organization to deeply listen to the people that you serve and to construct strategic ideas and ideas about equitable change from the people being served, not the people at the top. Because the at fact, the top, we have too much homogeneity, don't we? You know. Oh, and sorry to interrupt you, Annie, because I, yeah. I was just saying the classic strategic planning process, and I have witnessed myself. It's it's that board of directors and kind of the senior management of the nonprofit. They are making all of these strategic decisions in isolation. I guess is in your isolation, point, right? With an assumption that they have the most valuable knowledge uh, in, in, in that organizational setting. And one of the things that we do at Tidal is we developed a, a strategic planning process that is deliberately about democratizing whose voices get to shape strategy. We go out to the people that an organization serves. We go out to the most junior people in an organization, the people that touch the people that an organization serves, and we get them to help us form the strategy of the future. And quite frankly, you end up with a far more original strategy. You know, right. a far Love more that. unique and valuable strategy. And that's because 
people that are helping you fit really understand the problem and the mission and mandate of the organization in a much more visceral way. Um, and so from my perspective, the job is how do you build a board of directors uh, faith and the expertise and wisdom of the people in their organization, you know? Oh, How do you get that. that board of directors to believe in you? For me, it's me, the leader that's helping guide them through the strategic planning process, but it could just be a really um, determined and inclusive leader at a nonprofit anywhere who's like, you know what, you know, we work in, I don't know, homelessness, you know, and we have a bunch of very wealthy people shaping strategy for this organization. What if we went to homeless people and asked them what they needed to see change about this system? Because those systems, seem like they have intractable problems in them. And I would argue they're mostly intractable because we never ask the people that are served by those systems how they should be designed differently. Yeah, you know? we assume. We assume we know, right? Or we we think we That's do. It. And and of course what I've been struck by what you do at Title Equality and is is unique in and of itself if it were just kind of DEI work. But that would if you only did that, it would be again a one off a, a tick the box kind of activity. And what you've done is brought it very much integrated into strategic planning. And so I guess that's what you've already explained, but that seems to me to be your secret sauce, right? <laughs> that, that this is not just come in and we'll do a diversity training for you, yeah. but we're going to actually incorporate it in a, a very real way into your strategic plan. A hundred percent. And honestly, when we first started, we only were going to do strategic planning with an equity underpinning. That was that was our goal. And we were never going to be a DE&I company in a traditional sense. And we said no to most of our clients who wanted educational solutions in the DEI space. And that's because, you know, all of the evidence that we had found about training solutions in DE&I was that it was ineffective. Things like unconscious bias training, cultural competency training, which are quote unquote gold standards in this industry, right. have an incredibly poor efficacy uh, 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 rating from a research perspective. You know, like these 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 trainings don't make organizations more equitable. Right. And, and we were or, like angry as an organization that in the U.S. alone, it's a $10 billion industry, those trainings. You know, we were like, we could do so much more with that $10 billion to make real and enduring change, you know, than trying to focus, you know, in 90 minute sessions on people's individual bias, because individual bias is almost intractable. However, systemic bias is not. And, you know, we can change, you know, and make systems more equitable through design uh, much more effectively. So when we first started, that's, we were just going to do that strategy work. And then basically we came up with an innovation in training which brings strategy into DEI training. So we kind of do it in two different ways. We bring equity into strategy and we bring strategy into training. Oh, that's fantastic. How long does it take? And I'm sure it varies, but generally speaking, again, I love the fact you're not just going to come in and do the 90 minute and, and allow us to think we've done something that's really strategic and in fact would be only token. But what, what does your process look like in terms of the overall kind of timeline? Yeah, so when it comes to strategy work, when we do a wave, it's about a six month process from beginning to end, um, where we start with uh, listening and learning to the organization in a couple of different ways. And we really go to the entire organizational audience and we've worked in multinationals and gone out to thousands of people to ask people's perspectives of, um, of, of how inequality shows up, about, about the business, its relevance where it needs to go in the future. And we're really democratizing who gets to kind of come up with those strategic ideas. So 
Um, and then we bring everyone into the design process. So the strategic design itself is not a leaderly process. It's actually a whole organization process. And it's a really incredible, really uplifting process to be a part of. Um, so that's a wave. It's about six months from beginning to end. And then you reference wave. What do you mean by wave? That's, yeah, that's yeah, a wave I, is what we call our strategic planning process. So it's okay. this super democratic uh, design process that we bring organizations through in order to ultimately design a new strategic plan. And that new strategic plan will have underpinnings that will help the organization advance equity while it also advances its organizational mission and mandate. Um, uh, and it also gives voice just in the strategy development process. So it's an equitable process. Anyways, that's a wave. A wave is basically a five-step strategy design process that's very creative and collaborative. From a wave, we ultimately invented something called the equity sequence. And the equity sequence is our answer to what we saw as incredibly ineffective diversity inclusion um, training processes. Right. And it basically is a system of five questions. So the equity sequence is a system of questions that we teach people to ask so that equity can be embedded in every single decision that your organization makes. And so interestingly, the training doesn't take much longer than unconscious bias training. We can train someone in the equity sequence in about two and a half hours. Um, however, equity sequence is a lifelong learning process because you learn these five questions. You learn about the problem of inequality and the problem of bias and how it shapes decisions and misshapes decisions of organizations and strategy. And then you can take those questions into your everyday work, whether you're in a frontline role or whether you're the CEO of a nonprofit organization. And you can use those questions to reshape what you do to make the things that you do more equitable, the decisions that you make more equitable, the things that you design, the programs you design, et cetera. And so it's a lifelong learning process. It's more similar to something like Lean Six Sigma, where it's like a continuous quality improvement process yeah, that you're good. embedding in your organization. And the questions are simple enough that once you've learned them in that two and a half hour training, uh, they just kind of rattle around in your brain forever. And we, we hear from lots of people who have, have been part of the program that they just can't shake the questions. Like once you see them, you can't unsee them. And That's so, a rattling we need to have in exactly. our head, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's not yeah. a bad thing. Not a bad thing. <laughs> well, of course, we're going to link it up in the show notes because the, the WAVE methodology is fascinating. And I hope our listeners will learn and read more about it. In fact, the equity sequence, Anna, is a tool, literally, that if I'm listening, I can go to your website and take advantage of that. Is that correct? hundred percent. Yep. So on our website, there's a lot of information about the equity sequence, about how it was created. So our website is titleequality.com title like a tidal wave. Um, but you can actually take the equity sequence program on our public gamified learning platform. And you can find that at quest.titleequality.com. And there is a program there called uh, Equity Sequence for All. And basically anybody in the world can jump into that platform today and for $85, learn that process and system and start making change today or tomorrow. Yes, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And again, I, I, everything about what you and what title equality does is is for the long term and it just kind of goes against some of the the short term uh, activities i'm afraid that are happening in this space and you're setting the stage i, I wonder and if you could even talk through kind of a, a typical maybe in this case of course a nonprofit where you saw that they were dealing with issues of inequity or inequality and you helped them what, what, what was that process like can you walk us through maybe a, a case study if you will of some of your work 
For sure. So, so, so many come to mind, but I'll tell you about a, a nonprofit actually in, in the Southern US that we worked for. We got brought in to do a new strategic plan, um, but also to look at the organization's culture. Uh, the leader of the organization knew that there were serious problems with the culture because of an employee engagement survey that had happened um, that you know, indicated that they were performing really badly uh, across a number of dimensions with staff. And in particularly uh, folks that you know, identified as underrepresented uh, folks, whether they were racialized or women uh, in this particular organization um, were identifying incredible uh, cultural challenges. So we set out to develop a new strategic plan and, and a new culture plan using the WAVE methodology. And at the beginning of the process, we do a lot of listening and we do that listening through these very open questionnaires. So, you know, many DE&I questionnaires have very prescribed questions and they right. end up with very prescribed answers. Our questions are ex exceptionally open. And like an example of a question we might ask, what would be, you know, how have you experienced inequality here? You know, and you can hear that there's an assumption that people have experienced inequality in that question, right? Uh, which is unusual. Most DNI surveys assume that everything's great, and maybe a few people will have had an, a, a difficult experience. But when you ask an, a question like that, uh, that, that it makes that assumption that inequality exists, and it's just a matter of understanding how. It's amazing what people will tell you. So, in that organization, we heard about women being excluded from critical team meetings critical decision makings. We heard specifically about racialized women being excluded from leadership. Um, we heard about how those exclusions happen. Um, we heard about uh, from, from women and specifically from racialized women about what they saw to be the gap in their voices being missing in decision making, the consequences of those gaps for the organization. Um, and we solicited their ideas about how to make change, and we sought their ideas about how making that change would make the organization better and stronger and more capable of serving its mission. So ultimately, we brought the whole organization together to design a new strategy and a new culture plan. Um, and the ideas for that strategy, which came from everyone, including you know frontline administrative staff, um, all the way through to the senior executive team, were participant in these very democratic design sessions. The, the ultimate vision that was created was just so, first of all, it was so organically equitable. Uh, there was a place for it and, you know, for, uh, for an administrator as much as there was for the senior executive team and the board. Um, and it was inspiring to everybody, which was, right, right. you know, and understandable to everybody, which is so important with strategy execution. And most strategy fails on execution and fails on execution because people don't understand it. You know, it doesn't connect to them. It doesn't speak to them in their job. So you know, we, we, we took them through the process of developing the strategy and this culture plan. And, and the ultimate result of it was about a year later, they had exceptionally high, exceptionally uh, positive um, engagement results. They were well on their way uh, to making equitable change. And in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, they had a new muscle as an organization to talk about these problems. And they had a, a range of powerful listening sessions that really reshaped how many people in that organization felt about problems of racism and sexism and inequality. Um, 
That's and fantastic. And so, yeah, and that's a it, wonderful story. Yeah. Was there any resistance, Anna? I mean, I, I, from them or others are like, all right, Anna, we don't have to go that deep. I mean, can't we do a strategic plan? Yeah, yeah right. There's always resistance, but the key to making change, and, and this is something that I think is so important to people that genuinely want to see their organizations become more equitable, is that you need to find natural champions for change. And they exist in every single organization. You know, in that's most interesting. The, yeah, in most DEI work, uh, the pattern is that we go to the point of most resistance first. So we need to persuade the board who are all socioeconomically advantaged, mostly male, mostly white folks, yep. that there's a huge problem with inequality. And then we need to get them to come up with a statement about what we're going to do about it, <laughs> right? Like the path of most resistance versus what might happen if you were to just solicit people in your organization from any rank or role, from any persuasion, from any identity, who just passionately care about solving the problem of inequality in all of its forms. And you invited them to be part of solution design. But so what it could, may not how be much the, more could you accomplish, you know? Well, totally. And it, again, but it may not be the most senior person, obviously. And it in most not, cases, it likely isn't. right? Yeah, <laughs> it, it right. likely isn't. Yeah. Most strategic planning is going to be led by, you know, a board chair, board leader, or senior staff member. And you're saying, but are you literally saying that this person, what what does the champion exactly do in this process? So in this process, first of all, you need to invite different people to the table to talk about the planning process at all. And so in most of the organizations, yeah, Yeah. exactly. So in most organizations that we go into, I probably will have persuaded some form of senior leader, whoever the buyer is for strategic planning. You know, I persuaded that person to think about strategic planning differently. And I helped them see that they may actually not be getting to the most unique and the most valuable strategy by doing strategic planning the way every other organization does strategic planning. So, you know, for me, it's just about situating that question mark. Like, are you confident that your board of directors with their relatively homogenous views, uh, because they have relatively homogenous lived experiences, have access to the right information to design for your organization the most unique and compelling strategies, you know? So before you even start, you you need them to agree to that before you even start. somebody on the team to be kind of captivated by that idea. Yep. You know? And it usually just takes that one champion who brings that idea in a form that's palatable to the leaders in the organization to a conversation point and starts to break down resistance. And that's where the, you know, breaking down resistance really starts. It's just saying, look, would you be open to designing strategy differently? These are the outcomes of designing strategy differently. Would you be open to doing that? And in, in, in most organizations, I would say in a leadership team, about 30% of people on average are really actually kind of excited by that idea. Right. You know, Another 30% are like, you know, unsure, they're kind of on the fence, you know, and the rest may be diametrically opposed to doing that, you know, and that's okay. If you can grab that 60%, you know, and get them really excited, you're on your way, you know. But for the long-term success, you've got to have this kind of dynamic right in play, or it's just simply not going to stick. You just, I mean, you really, what I find is that the process builds buy-in organically, right? So as you go through the process, because people are getting excited and they realize they're really being listened to, and they realize that it's really fun to actually connect with people about the organization that are completely different than you, you know, Um, the resistance naturally ebbs away as you go through the process. And by the time you get to the end of the process, you actually have a plan that everybody's bought into and that work of a buy-in, which is normally the hardest thing about strategic planning. It's like, we've got this great plan and it's amazing. And then you can't get anyone to remember it forever. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, I was going like, to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Right. Well, but if you've been part of this design process, you're like, I remember exactly how we built that. And these, and, and just like, you know, boards always remember their strategic plan, but nobody else does. They remember because they were part of creating, it, you know? So when you make a whole organization part of creating it, it's amazing what people can remember, you know? Instead um, of just a leadership group that just yeah. kind of produces a strategic yeah. plan and hands it out to everybody hands it else. out and says, you should remember these ideas. These are the single most important ideas in our organization. You know, a frontline <laughs> right. person is going to say, says who, and it bears no relationship to the yep. work that I do every day. Yep. You know? Well, let me ask you this, Anna, what, what is the time horizon when you're doing this six month process to build a strategic plan? How far ahead are you typically looking and how do you build in kind of processes to assure the plan does stick after yeah. you're gone? Yeah. So for the, on the time horizon, I say, you know, a good strategic plan shouldn't be more than about three years. There's gotcha. just no way for you to possibly um, be able to kind of speak into the future that far today. I think life and, and the world of work just moves too quickly for that. Right, know? right. So I think, you know, unless you want to go through the unwieldy process of trying to reframe your your strategy midway through on a five or a 10 year plan, I would say keep keep it tight, you know. Um if you get to a great strategy, a really great, really unique value proposition for your organization, there will be elements of that strategy that will cut across and come back again and again and again, probably for the next 15 years, right? Like there'll be elements yes. like right. of uh, elements of the value that you're trying to create in the world that will be unchanging. And that's for me, like a litmus test of a great strategy. Like would I still love to be part of this 10 years from now, you know, but how you operationalize that strategy you know, post that three-year mark are not, will be massively different. Technology will be different. Your people will be different. You know, the scale of your organization will probably be different. And so you'll have to make a whole bunch of other trade-offs. And so why make those trade-offs too soon, you know, before you really have that. Right, right. So right. operationalizing is a journey, just like the equity sequence. So <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah, it's, I, I, I really believe that you, you should be building an operational plan every year. Um, and, and, you know, even updating that operational plan quarterly. Uh, your strategy should be super simple. Ultimately, your strategy should, you should be able to recall on functionally five fingers, you know, yes, like it's like, yes. you know, here's my vision, here's my mission, here are my, my three strategic priorities, here are my values, and that's it, right? You can obviously deepen that and express that in more complexity, but it should bubble down to that. So everyone knows how to make the right kind of organizational decision to add value, you know? Um, but but an operational plan is a muscle of an organizational an organization needs to, to learn that planning muscle. Usually most organizations do really poorly uh, in my experience. Right. And it takes a year, a year and a half to learn how to start making the right trade-off. So it's like, you've got those priorities and you need to teach leaders in an organization that we're going to say yes to this because it aligns to this priority. And we're going to say no to these things because it just doesn't align. It's not driving us towards the vision and it's not driving us towards our priorities you know, and teaching an organization that discipline is a process. And what we endeavor to do in our work is, is teach our leadership teams that discipline as we're finishing our strategy process, cue them up to do their first operational plan and to learn from it. And then we're available to help if need be to tune that up as they go through the process. But ultimately our goal would be to empower them to be able to do that themselves. But that has to be the most rewarding part, isn't it, Anna, for you to see that they are continuing to, to use that muscle after you're gone. And I guess that there's articulation of the plan throughout the organization, as opposed to only from leadership, or are there other examples of where you're like, yeah, this really worked here? 
Yeah. Um, you want another case study, Patton? Sorry. Well, yeah, or just kind of in what is evidence of this plan working? Because I noticed you made the point of when people feel like they get it, they could articulate it um, because yeah. the process itself, I guess, was embedded in in them throughout. Yeah. So I think for me, I mean, when I was a strategist working inside organizations, one of my litmus tests was always, am I hearing my words coming back to me? <laughs> you know, like ultimately right. my strategies right. were developed through many different voices. Like they weren't my words per se, but I would be the final writer on that strategy. Right. And so when I started hearing those words just popping up in random meetings, you know, oh, well, we need to stay focused on this and we need to stay focused on that. And this is our number one priority. I'm like, that's when you know that you've kind of hit the first real goal from an operational implementation process. When people Great. are just using the language, because language guides decision-making so powerfully, right? Like if you really know these are our only three priorities and you see that your leaders are making decisions entirely aligned with those priorities, you start to do it too, right? Like you, it just becomes a, a, a healthy habit in an organization. So for me, the first sign that it's working is 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 hearing that language bank, bouncing back in all kinds of random places in an organization. And if you're not hearing it yet, you got to keep communicating, you know? And people under-communicate plans. I, I can't tell you how many CEOs I've heard say, but they should know the plan. There are 15 priorities in it. There's a vision, there's a mission. <laughs> they should all know the plan by now. I've talked about it at least five times. Yeah, now, no way. Right? right, and it's like, well, yeah, maybe you know it because you were intimately involved in making it, but does a person, you know, like what I remember when I worked at the Y, you know, I, we, we used to joke, you know, with my boss who I adored, who was the CEO, you know, I would be like, well, could the lifeguards know it, you know? Yeah, right. So like, do they, do they, do they understand what that means to them? And, and, and that's got to be the goal from a communication perspective, that it's like sunk into the organization's fabric, you know? Once it sinks into the fabric, then it's about how do we build in processes so that we are regularly giving ourselves the opportunity to make the right decisions towards this plan. So are we touching base and are we thinking about what are we going to divest of as much as what are we going to invest in? You know, so if we're saying we're going to become a radically inclusive organization as one of our priorities, are we making the tough decisions that it takes to become a radically inclusive organization? You know, what Such are we letting question. go of yep. because right. we've made that a priority, you know? Such a good so, question. Yeah. yeah. So I think, I think that's, you know, operational planning, it's like, in some ways, it's more art than science. It's more about how do you create those regular touch points to make sure you're touching base on those decisions and connecting those decisions to your bigger picture strategy? How do you make sure you're letting go of something that doesn't fit rather than just trying to kind of twist it into your organizational fabric? Um, but that's super important. And honestly, every organization that I work with does it a little bit differently. And I think it's more about finding the natural rhythms in your organization where that planning can be well received and, and people can embrace it. And thinking about like, how do we make decisions anyway? Let's formalize some of that, you know? Right. Uh, well, yeah. you're, you're asking so many good questions. And I'm, again, delighted that you've share this kind of wisdom you've gained and are continuing to gain as you work with organizations, acknowledging that they're all different in, in some respects, but there's some common themes here, aren't there, that um, our listeners I know are absorbing. And in fact, if a listener right now is thinking, all right, Anna, I, I get it. Yes, I probably have issues at my nonprofit around inequality and inequity. I'm probably in the midst of a strategic planning process, either I'm in it or I'm thinking about doing it. You know, where where should a nonprofit leader start? Is there any kind of final advice you might offer for someone uh, in that kind of situation? 
I would say the most powerful thing to think about is who are you designing this strategy for? And I want you to think about, you know, do you have all the perspectives around the table to really serve that audience with your strategy? It's still about inclusion, literally in the strategic it's planning literally process. Literally about isn't it? inclusion. Yeah, wow. yeah. I'm and going to leave you with an equity sequence question, which will help leaders get at that. Great. And the, it's the second question in the equity sequence, and the, and the question is, who was this strategic plan? I'm just going to use strategic plan as an example. So, who was this strategic plan designed by, for, with, and without? Yeah. It- it seems like it would be a simple question, but it's not, is it? It's and, not. And, <laughs> and we know, need to unpack that. Most strategic plans yes. are designed by a, for a radically diverse audience by an incredibly homogenous. Say that again, Anna. That was that was perfect. Most strategic plans are designed for a radically diverse audience by an incredibly homogenous group of people. Yeah, very true. Anna, this has been fantastic. And again, on many levels, it's something nonprofit leaders need to be thinking about. And of course, you have posed the questions that they need to try to answer. And in fact, bring more people to the table to answer with them. This is not uh, uh, a solo effort uh, by a nonprofit leader or a board leader or whatever. Um, Grateful for your advice. Of course, we're going to talk about where people can find more. Um, But if I could ask for a parting gift, how about a book that's been meaningful to you and you might recommend to our listeners? For sure. So in in alignment with the conversation we just had, I want to point people to Daniel Kahneman's classic, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. And the reason I want to point you to that book is uh, it will teach you, uh, I hope, what it taught me, which is that all of us are susceptible to errors in thinking. Uh, we, most of the, the world that we live in is incredibly complex and the, the, the lives that we lead are incredibly complex and we default uh, to quick thinking most of the time. And when we default to quick thinking, we default to our biases and every single one of us has biases. Some of them are pernicious than others, of course, but right. all of us, every single one of us has biases. And so if we go through the world making critical decisions for our organizations uh, without slowing down our thinking, considering where bias is creeping into those decisions, we will be making inequitable decisions whether we realize it or not. And so I want you to read Daniel Kahneman's book and I want you to apply some of his great thinking to the problem of inequality and to understanding why the problem of inequality is inevitably cropping up in your organization. Even if you love that organization, even if you think it has a beautiful culture, I guarantee that that problem lurks within it, just like it lurks throughout our society. So, you know, and I would ask yourself, when are there opportunities to slow down your thinking and really think about the potential consequences and the potential biases that may exist in your ideas, your decisions, your designs, your strategy? Great advice, great recommendation. Anna, thank you uh, for so many words of wisdom. Thank you for being my first Canadian guest. As we uh, near uh, 100 episodes, uh, I'm delighted that you bring a global perspective that is, though, very local, frankly, for any organization and nonprofit leader. Where can our listeners go, Anna, to find out more about you and the, the great work you're doing through Title Equality? Awesome. So the the uh, easiest place to find us is on our website at titleequality.com. 
Uh, as I mentioned before, you can check out the Equity Sequence Program at quest.titleequality.com. And you can find uh, my voice and the voice of my business partner, Dr. Kristen Leish, uh, all over LinkedIn. Uh, I'm Anna Dewar-Gully, and she is Dr. Kristen Leish. And you will see that we regularly rant in all kinds of forms <laughs> about how to make the world a more equal place. Indeed, I have uh, enjoyed many of your rants and uh, great content that you produce your website through LinkedIn and other mediums. So thank you, Anna, again, for joining me on the path. Thank you so much, Patton. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Anna as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can enhance your organization's strategic planning approach, especially with a lens for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Don't forget the show notes are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, where you can find out more about Anna, title equality, and especially their unique equity sequence tool. As always, thanks for sharing this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe. Just go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll see links to Apple, Spotify, and all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features we're producing at least once a month. And if you like this episode, you'll really enjoy episode number 73, where Valerie Williams reminds us of what every nonprofit leader must do to support their team. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week. And I'll see you next time on The Path.